Hey, before we get into today's episode discussing Thrawn, I just wanted to remind you all that we are still in the middle of survey season, which means that the fall 2020 listener survey is still live. A massive thank you to everyone who has already filled it out. Your responses have been really insightful in helping me to find new ways to better the show for you, the listeners, and to find different avenues I can take in the future to create a better overall experience for this community. If you haven't yet taken the survey but would be interested in doing so, it only takes around five to seven minutes to complete, and you can find it in the episode description, or you can find it pinned to the top of the Outer Rim Reads Twitter page, at Outer Rim Read Pod. Your input is so appreciated and is really important in shaping the future of the podcast. I'm excited to see where we can take this show together. So without further ado, let's get into episode 18 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 18 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this second episode of our inter-season break, we will be discussing Grand Admiral Thrawn's adaptation from Timothy Zahn's Thrawn novel to the Star Wars Rebel TV show, and I'm joined today by my friend Connor Floyd. Connor, how are you doing, man? Thank you for being on the show again. Here you are. Welcome back. I'm so happy to be back. Every time you hit me up, I get so ecstatic about it. And to talk about this one, I feel honored to be able to talk about this subject in particular. I'm, I'm excited. There's probably no one else that I would rather have on for this episode specifically because I know how much you love Rebels as a show and how how enthusiastic you were about or at least the last time we talked you loved Rebels I know that recently you actually finished watching the uh watching the show season (laughs) three and four but also how enthusiastic you were about the Thrawn novel so I'm I'm happy to have you on to discuss the main man from what's been this past half year plus of discussing Thrawn in the book and now we get to talk about how he appeared in the show I'm I'm glad to have you on the show man dude yeah I, I kind of feel like you've like pushed me back into the neighborhood of like checking Thrawn out again right like I you know I didn't know we were getting Thrawn books and you're like oh we're gonna do this thing like would you like to come on and talk about it every once so I'm like well absolutely let's do that and then you know <laughs> oh by the way we'll talk about the differences in the show versus the book I'm like I, you know I haven't even finished Rebels yet so that's like it's cool it's like it's like I get all of these these fun prompts to kind of go back to this thing that I'm really passionate about and it's all because of you so it's I'm yeah just grateful and excited. Yeah, I'm excited too, man. I think before we get kicked off with what we've got, we've got the positives and the things that we kind of thought they could have done differently with him in the show. How about you give the listeners just your kind of how your feelings on Thrawn as a character? And this could be stretching between the book and the show, but just Thrawn as a whole going into this before we get into the finer details of him. Yeah, I if, if anyone's listened, I, I'm pretty sure on the first episode, I'm g- probably going to be paraphrasing certain thoughts that I've already expressed. But uh, I think one of the biggest pulls and the most like alluring factor for Thrawn is that, you know, he's a character who seems to play 4D chess. And we're used to characters who do that all of the time, especially in Star Wars. You know, well, all the time, mainly the Emperor. Um, but <laughs> he doesn't have the force to do it. He is just coming at it from a mortal understanding of things. And he's able to, for the most part, come out on top. 
And so that's such a fascinating thing to have, you know, this top tier character basically working to get where he needs to be and things work out for him. And also it feels really nice to have another villain in the Star Wars roster that we can appreciate. And that thought in itself got ironed out even more reading book one of Thrawn and just kind of getting to see more of what's going on behind the curtains for him and what he's expecting. So it's really nice to have a, um, you know, another villain in the roster of Star Wars villains that I can kind of be like, oh, I'm really into them, but... Some of the stuff I'm kind of like, oh, but you're a villain. And then other times I'm like, okay, but as a character, I want to do nothing but praise you. That was one of the kind of like the points of contention that I was feeling, you know, watching Rebels. Because I, I, I watched the show after I read the books. And watching the show, I kind of wanted him to succeed. But then also I had to check myself because I'm like, wait, no, he's he's fighting for the Empire. But he is very different from... Palpatine and Vader and the likes of them because as we found out in the book and especially in that chapter where he and Night Swan were having that huge discussion between themselves we realized that Thrawn is not coming at this from a pure evil point of view that he's he sees the bigger picture the grander picture and what he's doing he's not necessarily motivated to do those things because they're bad and he relishes that it's always some means to an end and I love the nuances in his character in those ways I think that just makes him compelling and interesting with more depth there something very specific that also adds that depth is in that exact scene it's the last conversation he has with the night swan and then it carries over to um you know post or not post but it carries over to the end of that book um after that conversation is when they actually should i am i allowed to am i allowed to say a spoiler from the end of that book is that i don't want to oh we've already we've already we co- have, yeah, we've already <laughs> talked about it. Who am i, who am yeah, I we've already protecting about right it. now yeah exactly <laughs> um so you know when we confirm that night swan dies like i it's this poetic bit that we get with thrawn where he says like Zahn writes that Thrawn thinks, you know, the galaxy is for the worse because Night yep. Swan passed. Yep. And that kind of shows that, like, it's he is a villain who obviously has motivations that go beyond the moral spectrum that we perceive. And the fact that he's able to see basically the significance of somebody else and the lay of the board after they're gone. It's I, There was just something very, very beautiful about how he perceived things when it came to Night Swan's death. I guess on the vein of the value in those perceptions that we got from him in the book, I think that kind of segues us into discussing how he appeared in the show because in the show we didn't we weren't able to get those personal perceptions those personal thoughts from Thrawn you know the the POV chapters you know there there was nothing no insight into his mind that we got in the show and it's understandable because the show was not about him but it just I think that was kind of like one of the starkest points of contrast with how he was portrayed in the book to the show so on that vein Let's get started with the points that we've got, uh, and in a similar format to our last episode discussing Arenda Price's adaptation, Connor and I both have a few positive points and then a few things they could have done differently in portraying Thrawn in the show. So let's get started with our positives, and uh, Connor, do you want to kick us off with something you really liked about his depiction in the Star Wars Rebels TV show? The first positive feeling I had for it is something that I think pretty much everyone who knows at least like the slightest variable of Thrawn is off the bat. They, they touch on his appreciation for art. I kind of feel like that goes without saying, but it's going to get brought up anyway, is that, you know, the more you get through rebels with Thrawn, it's nice. Cause they, you know, it starts off fairly um, like soft and subtle. And by the end of it, he's really, he's almost kind of trying to 
tell other people how he views the significance of it. And um, that was something that I really liked because I feel like it's a conversation we've had dozens of times, you and I, you and every other amazing guest that you've had, but it was written in a different way. And so that was, that was just a nice thing to have, right? It's like, how does somebody not Timothy Zahn write Thrawn and write how he views art and culture in its, in its entirety. And they did it. And I thought that was freaking awesome. I really agree. I think we've come to understand that it's a very, it's one of the central points to his character as a whole throughout any piece of media that you're learning about Thrawn from, it's his relationship with art. And that also is, is one of the positives that I have here. And I was really thankful that they put that in the show because I know, you know, he doesn't nearly get as much screen time as the likes of, you know, Phoenix Squadron with Hera and Ezra and the rest of them. Um, there were a few scenes in the show where they showed him in his office surrounded by oh. his art pieces. And that could be physical, it could be holographic. And we we're kind of given that image in the book as well, where some pieces he has physically there, but then others were, you know, holograms, holographic pieces. And I just love yeah. those scenes. And so I think the you know, the first instance we got about that was when I think they were on Ryloth and he was talking about the Twi'lek Kalikori and the importance of that because there was a scene where Hera was undercover or disguised as a Twi'lek servant trying to steal back her family's Kalikori. And, you know, Thrawn stops her and, you know, he's asking, I think, the officer that's with him if he if he knows what this piece of art is. And he goes on to pretty much expose Hera for who she is because he knows from his studying of Twi'lek culture that if Kalikori is a family heirloom and that only members of a, of a specific family would care anything about a Calicori. And so he knew that this was Harris and Nula trying to take back the Calicori just from studying the culture and knowing the value of these pieces of art to Twi'lek families. That was, I think that was one of the first instances we got about his relationship with art. And I, I love that moment where he just is just explaining the importance of this piece of art and is able to kind of spoil Hera and Ezra's fun in that moment and, and capture them. Something that can't be stated enough is that while he is deducing Hera Syndulla's identity just with the observation of the Calicori, is that Kevin freaking Kenner is just quietly playing the organ in the background <laughs> while Ezra's like yes. observing this whole thing. And like we get the first inkling of Thrawn's fucking theme and it's absolutely matching it's almost like Hans Zimmer right it's this it's this beautiful it's yep. horrific and it's ominous but at the same time it's met with that you're just you're immediately like wow I'm I'm kind of I don't know it's captivating and I feel like it, it perfectly matches the duality of of Thrawn's personality that we as book readers and show run, uh, show viewers have begun to see right is and we've we touched on that right the villain who's got motivations that go beyond you know what a villain's motivations are Something else that I wanted to bring up, too, is that, like, to go back to the book and compare forward, um, well, in the book, we get to know that he has a huge interest in Clone War era yeah. technology, which Cham Syndulla was a known fighter during the Clone Wars on yeah. Ryloth. There's no way in hell he didn't know who Cham Syndulla was. So when he sees an adult green Twi'lek coming up and yeah. grabbing for the <laughs> Kalikori, it's like, and there's that, that beautiful moment where, uh, what was that guy's name? Was it Sla uh, Slavin? S uh, Slavin, yeah. Slavin. I think, uh, Captain he, Slavin, I think. Ca uh, yeah, Captain Slavin, where he, he, he mentions, like, we should have better manners for our host. And he's like, our host? But we are the occupants! <laughs> And it's so good just to see him just, like, drop the ball in front of everyone and simultaneously throw off the Imperials. 
Exactly, because in that moment, because I guess they're also in the room, there is this kind of mosaic of the Sindula family. Yes. And so it's kind of like he sees, you know, Hera in front of him. He also sees the mosaic. He also, like you pointed out there, is probably very familiar with Cham Sindula and, and his family from just, you know, <laughs> relevantly so. <laughs> so kind of all the pieces played together there. And I just love how in that moment where you're right, his theme is playing slowly and steadily in the background and he's kind of monologuing as to how he knows it's how he knows it's Hera. And you can see Slavin kind of understanding gradually what is happening. And then Hera also you see kind of her stoic persona in that moment kind of fall away and when she's shocked at how he was able to just totally take the cover off of her plan there. It's just so good. And I, and I will kind of tie that into one of my other positives here, just because you already brought it up. I think the aesthetic of Thrawn in this show was captured perfectly. We have the theme where I think this is the only soundtrack in Star Wars that utilized the organ, I think. It was. It seemed very unique in in all of the songs and all of the soundtracks in Star Wars that we've heard. It seemed specifically unique to Thrawn, which yep. I think is is very fitting. And I think also, what, what did you think about Lars Mikkelsen voice acting him? Because I thought he captured the kind of like the silky, cold voice of Thrawn very well. I loved kind of like the face value portrayal of kind of just this cold, stoic character of, of Thrawn. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I mentioned to you that when I got into Thrawn, the very first time ever was the audiobook Heir to the Empire. I can't remember what that Thrawn voice was because to me, <laughs> yeah. this is, like, it, it's funny because, like, to me, this is, this is objectively, fuck you, that's what Thrawn sounds like. But there are certain moments when he raises his voice and his accent comes out, that it kind of gets destroyed for me. So it's the mm. simultaneous positive and negative thing. Cause I, when he's, you know, when he's talking so calmly, it's, I'm like, Oh my God, yeah. that's so good. And then when he starts having an accent, I'm kind of like, ah, I get it. Star Wars villains all have accents, <laughs> but uh, even, I mean, even Hera's accent came out in, in a couple of moments where she got very heated, where kind of like the French twilight accent came yeah. out, which I, I don't think it's necessarily, out of place, but I can see how that. Wait, wait, Thrawn's Swedish? What? <laughs> like, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, but like, but uh, yeah. The bottom line is like he his yeah his performance is just so good. It's that's more like a I guess it should be treated more as a side note on the accent because like I give him nothing but gold stars for the performance he had. I mean, it was so good. And um, so there's I I, to I told you I left my my notes at, at work, <laughs> but there's one thing I remember, and I'll tell you that one. It's actually right after that sequence when he unveils who Hera is, and, and uh, he and Slavin walk out, and he basically says like I need to dip out and go work on my project. He's Slavin. I will leave our guest to you, and Slavin says, uh, you know, I don't understand why we don't just kill that Twilight trash. And Thrawn grabs him by the collar immediately yeah. and snarls and lifts him up and then like calms himself and straightens his coat out and says like, oh, I'd, I, I forget not everybody appreciates art as much as I do in the way that I do. And, and, and he just like walks out after putting the fear of God into Slavin. <laughs> um, and that was something that I thought was very interesting because in the book, we kind of had a moment like that in the book where, um, where Eli Vanto kind of notes, he's like, wow, I've never seen Thrawn yell before. But he also, yeah. he also like mentally comments. He's like, actually, I wouldn't say that Thrawn's angry. Or Th I'm sorry, Thrawn is the one that then in the book says like, oh, I'm not angry. It's just some people need a, a sterner voice to like yeah. distribute command. So that threw me off as kind of a, like, oh, it kind of seems like he's like 
actually angry. And then the other thing is that I like I, I noted was like I don't know if Thrawn would have done this or because so here's the deal he knows who Hera Syndulla is it's the pilot of Phoenix Squadron he knows who she is in relation to Cham Syndulla he understands all of this yet he leaves her to Slavin who has openly remarked on how he would rather kill her so to me I was kind of like yeah. Thrawn I don't understand it kind of seems like you're leaving her. Like, again, looking at this as Bookthron, who is going to avoid as much unnecessary action as possible, it seems like a very weird choice for him to choose for Slavin to be the uh, overseeing, you know, entity on that. For sure, yeah. And that also ties into uh, a difference that I had noted or something I wish that they had done a little bit differently, where, just like previewing that, I guess, he did delegate a lot at times where... Thrawn, as we come to expect him in the book, he was very hands-on with a lot of situations, and I just, like you, I thought that was a little bit of a strange situation. I, th I think that Slavin had said that he wanted to destroy the Calicori, and I think mm. that's when Thrawn that is it. kind Thank of got so mad much, at yeah. him. But yes, I, I did note the same thing. There were a lot of times in the show where he kind of removed himself from the situation a little bit, I guess, conveniently for the plot of the show. It's a slippery slope, but I do have like a thing that I've been running through my head while Thrawn was on screen as like my kind of justification for his actions, which is why I was talking to you about like, you know, do you want to start with like a negative or a positive side of questioning on this? Yeah. Because I, I have, like, this little, like, I guess, like, headcanon defense, if you will, but it's not it's not great evidence. And, like, I kind of have to, like, convince myself that that's the <laughs> convincing evidence, you know? Because, um, like, right there when he snaps, he doesn't have Eli Vanto. He doesn't have his buddy that he's worked with for so long. So yeah. part of me would kind of be accepting of the conversation of, like, he literally doesn't have his right-hand man who understands what he's thinking and he's sure. officially surrounded by people who literally don't give a shit. I would understand that you are allowed to pay that toll, man, right? Like, that's that can degrade on you after a while, for sure. You know, Thrawn by no means is immune to, I guess, those kind of effects where, you know, he was kind of spoiled with, you know, having Eli there, having Pharaoh there, who ended up, you know, growing into her own as well. Very competent officers around him. And then, you know, in, in the show, it was kind of just surrounded by... Incompetence. I, w I won't say that Price was largely incompetent. She was one of, you know, she and Yularen, I think, were two of the people that knew what they were doing to, you know, to a greater extent. But by and large, you know, when you've got Admiral Constantine there, when you've got Slavin there, you know, there's only so much, you know, you know, not even Thrawn is immune to just kind of maybe the exasperation of all these factors at one point just kind of adds up for him. I, I don't yeah. know. That's, that's a fair point. And also to tack that on is like, you know, he... He sent Eli off to the Chiss Ascendancy, and on top of that now, like, it's also very possible that having that entity next to you at all times was probably a very grounding thing for him, and while I'm sure that takes a toll, I, uh, takes a toll I also wonder if he has begun to, like, and it does kind of seem that way. Again, it's, like, not a lot of evidence, but, like, to me, it kind of seems like he has kind of succumbed to the Imperial War Machine as far as, like, behavior towards people. And that's the thing is where I go, hey, am I coming up with an excuse to justify the actions of a character that I really care about in a situation where I don't feel he was appropriately written at times? Or is this actually how it is, right? Am I reading between the lines or am I creating a space in between things so that I can have my own, like, little story exist? 
That's interesting. That, that that is a fair point. You know, I think there were some things that they did very well about how he interacted with those around him, and then other times where you know, like how he treated Slavin in that moment, were kind of deviated from the norm that we've come to expect. And you know, a lot of people can try to you know justify certain things. And I know that Timothy Zahn said that he was pleased with how he was portrayed in Rebels. You know, I, I think ultimately he is Zahn's character, and Zahn knows him best. I did think that. One of the primary points about Thrawn's character in the Empire, in the book, was that he was able to distance himself from this Imperial war machine that was all about seeking personal glory. And we saw that contrast evident a lot of times in the book. And I think in the show here, right before I think they were attacking Adalon, the rebel base on Adalon, Agent Callus, who's been then exposed as a traitor, accuses Thrawn and Admiral Constantine about arguing over who gets the glory of this battle. And Thrawn says, he replied, and I quote, I do not require glory, only results for my emperor. And then we get this contrast to Constantine's attitude, I think later in the battle when he costs the Empire, their victory, where he left the formation and tried to take down, I think, was it uh, Commander Sato? Or, yeah, Commander Sato. He said, quote, I will not be denied the glory of this kill. And we see that contrast there where Thrawn's not about the glory. He, he wasn't in the book, and we see in the show, it's very much not his motivation as well compared to the likes of Constantine and the Imperials around him. What did you think about how they depicted that part of his character? I think that line actually puts more things into perspective than I realize, and I realize it now by having you say it out loud, is I'm, I'm only interested in results for my emperor. Because it very much does seem like he is result-driven. If we were to compare him and Orinda, right? Orinda has an agenda. Sure. And I mean in Rebels specifically. Um, yeah. But like Thrawn does actually seem more specifically geared towards results. And I mean, yeah, like I, it'd be that way. I, yeah. that is all I got. I unfortunately, I'm so sorry, but no, uh, that yeah. is that is totally fair. That is totally fair. I, I um I think that I'll go back to the his relationship with art for a second because there was another example from the show that I really liked that I thought they captured well. Just I, I love how there were a lot of examples about how he used art to his advantage, and I thought this moment ended up being pretty massive in him revealing who the traitor within his ranks uh, was. And so there was this moment here where Ezra was captured by the Empire. I think Callus was responsible for his capture, but he never revealed to Thrawn and to Price and to Yalaren who this rebel was that they captured. And so the rebels ended up escaping with the help of Callus, but Ezra had left behind his helmet here. And and his helmet in the show had this design of a loth, uh, a loth cat, a loth cat on it. And after the fact, when Thrawn is kind of debriefing with Callus, with Yolaren and the rest, one of his officers brings him this helmet. And he's noticing that the design and the artistry of this Lothcat matched pieces that he'd seen drawn from Sabine Wren. And he was able to deduce that this prisoner, if they were able to get their hands on art by Sabine, he was probably Ezra, because he knew from his encounters before with the rebels and probably his studying of them that Sabine and Ezra, they were, you know, good friends. Uh, they were closer knit than the others in the group, per se. And that he and Yularen were then able to piece together that Callus did not tell them that it was Ezra specifically who was the prisoner. Uh, whereas if he was loyal to the Empire, if he's loyal to Thrawn, he would have told them, yo, I have the Jedi Bridger, get over here now. And so it was from that moment that he was able to realize that Callus was the spy, 
And he has this great quote here, quote, I believe Fulcrum, which was Callus's kind of code name, will be more useful to the Empire than Agent Callus ever was. But I love how he was able to deduce who the traitor was just by looking at this helmet and realizing from that who their prisoner was, even though Callus did his best to kind of hide that from him and from Yularen. Yeah, that and the Ryloth sequence actually tie in very well with... Um something that uh, Timothy Zahn said about his writing style for Thrawn. Sure. He said, uh, I- I'm going to paraphrase the heck out of it because I read it like a while ago. But um, but Zahn basically said, you know, when you get to the end of my books, like, I don't want this great reveal to kind of be like out of left field. I want you to kind of go like, oh, that makes sense. Like you explained it yeah. and you followed the rules and I get where you, how you got there. I just didn't get there first. And that feels very much, anytime Thrawn explains something in Rebels, it feels very much like he's just like, oh, well, of course we know the rules, but if you tweak them a little bit, we can see exactly who this person is. Yeah. And it's just that you're not looking at it in a different way. Hey, it's almost like the season three uh, message of the day from Kanan, Bendu, and Ezra. I've learned to see things differently. Um, <laughs> and Thrawn was in on that conversation. He must have <laughs> yeah. had like a, a bug somewhere. Like, oh, that's that's a great line, isn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah. And if we asked him, he would just tell the Emperor, oh, I caught it on a back channel. It must have been an accident. Just the same way he found out about <laughs> the, the Death, Death Star. Star. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> I'll just, I just heard it in passing. Yeah, uh, Maybe I'm, it means something. <laughs> I don't know. The author told me about it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, but, but yeah, I, and I really liked it because it felt like that was in great spirit that that represented Thrawn in a very good way that, that Timothy's on so far has time and time again done for Thrawn. It felt like, you know, the other writers of the room were able to do the same thing. They didn't cheapen his blows at all. I don't think. Yeah. That's one thing. Despite all the negatives I have, I don't believe that Thrawn has somehow been mitigated or diminished or washed out or diluted in any way. I think he is... At his core, I genuinely believe Thrawn is, like, the same character that I had fallen in love with so long ago. That is good to hear, because I know that there has been a lot of people who have thought that in the show he seemed kind of diminished from what we've expected him to do, and I, I... I don't think I necessarily agree. I think there were certain ways that he went about things in the show that could lead to that line of thinking, but... Yeah. I, I think that I'll just I'll, that kind of ties into my last positive point here is that I do think they captured his tactical genius well Hands in the down. show, and that kind of started with his first entrance, you know, in his first scene in season three, episode one, where right off the bat he's connecting the dots, realizing that you know the rebels rescued Hondo and that one of his friends was a laborer at a nearby plant, and that was near the hyperspace lane that the rebels came out of, and that he deduced that they were going to plan an attack on that plant. And he just ends the scene with this quote, they will be the architects of their own destruction. And I think in many ways, he had a lot of great one-liners in the show, which I was glad for. But in many ways, he was right here. And I think that the best example in the show that we got of him just piecing together points that are there, like you're saying, that they're not out of left field. They, they're they available to our knowledge from what we've watched in the show, but he's able to take them and connect them in a way like a puzzle was where he narrowed down the location of the rebel base on Adalon, where he took the trajectory of General Dodonna's fleet and the trajectory of Callus's transmission when he was trying to warn the rebels that Thrawn knew that they were coming to attack the TIE Defender facility. And he took kind of like the, the pinpointed location of where those two vectors aligned. And 
even though there was no planet there at that point on the imperial charts, he had studied the art of the species of that sector and realized from their ancient art that there was, in fact, a planet that they spoke of and realized that Adelon was this planet that was there. I, I just love how he pieced that together, and I thought that that was a, a good example, kind of true to him, just kind of piecing together dots and connecting dots that others would just kind of not realize were, were related at face value, but there's there was something more there. And I think that a few times he's able to demonstrate that deeper understanding that those around him just were not aware of. 100%. That's, yeah. They didn't fuck that up at all. And just kind of closing on the the positives here, I think that yes. they also captured his, how he was able to just act out of just objective, strategic, logical fact in the moment where when they had realized that Callus was the spy or that there was a spy within their ranks he says quote acting out of emotion will not help us here we must wait and watch and I think it's from from there that he was able to kind of demonstrate that because I think Price wanted to go ahead and interrogate everyone there everyone they knew we have to find them now and he's like no 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 we're not going to rush into this we're going to take our time we're going to we're going to bide our time and watch and see what happens and it ended up playing out in their favor and I, I like that little quote there and how that you know, he was not very impulsive. And I think they, that was true to how he was in the book, where yeah. he, he was not very emotional. He was just very logical. He's very methodical. He was very cool and collected. And they maintained that through the show. Except, I mean, I know we did bring up like a, you know, a segment earlier where yeah. obviously he wasn't, but that's, that's a single situation to be sure. Um, but yeah, it's really cool how he says, uh, what was the quote you just said? Acting out of emotion won't help us now. He also flips that script and throws it to Rook at the end of the show too. When yeah. they've lost Kanan, he says they're going to lash out. They're going to be emotional. Look That's for so it. good. They're going to yes. lose their shit and you need to be there for it because they're going to be the ones that are going to come to us and we have all of the balls on our court. And it's That is a really good connection. It's I shouldn't have brought up Kanan's death. I'm going to be sad the rest of the day. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thankfully, he didn't really have a hand in that, or I, you know, I had to talk about that scene in the last episode. But um, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that is a really don't good. Don't envy uh, you guys, <laughs> right? It <laughs> uh, does hit you in the feels, but that that is a good connection, I think, to end the first uh, section that the positives on. That was how, yeah, he was able to tell Rook that this is how they're going to act. I know this, and right now, emotion is it's going to play into our hands now. I, I actually like have one positive that just popped up because we were talking about, yeah. uh, because I, I freaking brought up Kanan's death. That's something that actually happens at the very end of the, uh, damn near the end of the show. Um, Orinda throws the parade to try to throw everyone off the scent of the fact that the fuel depot was destroyed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Thrawn <laughs> chimes in and is basically like, you fucking idiot. Like, do you think a parade is going to sh- hide the fact that yeah. literally all of the fuel for my project has been gone? And he was like, and that's the thing too, where like, he basically gets to, in a very cool way, show that he is not happy and that he sees this entire strategy of, he was like, you understand the entire plan was to get rid of the fuel depot. We have one small victory against our massive loss. You just gave the enemy exactly what they needed to have an upper hand, and it's because you couldn't be cool and collected. Like, exactly. she was so hellbent on getting Phoenix Squadron, but we, you know, you've already talked about that. But yes, I have found the end of my point, and I'll put a period there. Yeah, I think that ties in again to uh, his tactical awareness, how he was able to see the larger picture there. Because, you know, if he was there, 
in Price's shoes, he would not have obviously blown up the fuel to his project. He would have let the rebels go. Yeah. And that happened multiple times in the show where it did end up playing to his advantage, you know, where Price is kind of short-sighted in that scene. We have a chance to kill Kanan. Do it now. doesn't matter what the cost is, where Thrawn... He's he's telling Price. He realized that this is just a small victory. Yes, it, it's great that Kanan is dead. When she shows him his lightsaber, he's like, so, so it's true. But then you realize that this came at a cost where you know, kind of like it's a short lived moment before he just unloads on her and as to the gravity of what she did. And I thought that was a testament to the contrast there between how far down the road the either of them is able to see and, you know, they I think they they got that with Thrawn. And also the performance on that line, too. The, so good. I, what, what is the voice actor's name again? I'm so sorry. It's Lars. Lars Mikkelsen. Lars yeah. Mikkelsen, that son of a bitch. He's so perfectly just... He, he exudes this ramp into the deep end of the pool. And he so perfectly walks there, right? He starts at the three feet and he's yeah. he's like ankle <laughs> deep and he just keeps going and he's underwater. And he's it's so good, man. It was just an absolute brilliant performance. Yeah, I think overall masterclass from from Lars Mikkelsen. I, I think that how they just captured Thrawn, his persona and his character, you know, at face value, especially it was just perfect. I think. Yeah. So on that note, let's let's move on to I guess the the other points, the things that you know. I like how my my previous guest Sean pointed out. This isn't necessarily saying that they did things wrong. I don't think there's a right and wrong here. There are things you know because it, it is canon. It's how they decided to portray him. I, I like how these are points that we think they might have done differently, that they could have done differently. I'm not here to criticize them saying they got him wrong. Um, I think that just based on the material we have in the book compared to how we have in the show, it's just fun to discuss the nuances. And, you know, I just want to preface and say that I, I'm not here to, like, paint a black and white picture of Thrawn. Uh, you know, and I think that's not what Thrawn would want, <laughs> you yeah. know, for, for himself. Um, but yeah, to, how about you start us off here with your first thought on something that you think they could have done differently about his character in Rebels? Everything! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, something uh, that, honestly, I went through a wide range of emotion, and by wide range, I mean probably just two, which was pissed off and then going, oh, okay, well, let's, let's think about this for a second. And that was... His perceived murder of the Bindu. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you genuinely you'd, pissed yeah. me off. At that point, that was something so very tangible for me where I wasn't viewing it as two separate iterations of a character, but as a single iteration. And I was looking at Book Thrawn and I was comparing that to Night Swan. And I was just like, no, there's no, there is no way that Bendu would say, you cannot, I cannot be killed by you. And you're surrounded by, um, what does he say? Uh, I see it all around you. You're going to lose. It's, 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 it's like, like they're wrapped in a cold, like tentacles wrapping you in a cold embrace, something and, like that. And the camera cuts to Thrawn's face and he looks like his pride just took a, a gut punch and he puts the gun damn near to Bendu's head and pulls the trigger and Bendu blinks out of there. So that really, really, really made me mad. My first reaction was just like, you fucked up, guys. You were doing so good up until this point. And after I had my moment of like freaking out about it, I kind of was like, actually, I guess the thing is I just disagree with putting him in a situation where he does that because I didn't see really what it did to his character. 
Unless there's how a build-up. How do you mean? All right, so what I was going to say, my my kind of like counter to it was, let's look at the battle board, if you will. Thrawn and Death Troopers and gang are shooting up at the Bendu directly into the, the center of the storm. They drop Bendu. Well, what is protocol after that? I'm sure it's to go make sure the threat is killed, right? So at that yeah. point, Thrawn is going to follow protocol. He's not going to break it. He's going to follow it. So he's going to pull his Death Troopers up, and they're going to go um, and inspect what the alleged enemy was. And they see it's a creature. He's allowed to have a conversation with it. The thing clearly shows that it thinks it's more powerful, and Thrawn puts it into its life. It's either him that does it or the Death Troopers, right? They ended an Imperial threat. Huzzah. So to me, that kind of justifies the actions of that scene. But then what I was just saying was what I would have done differently was not put Thrawn and the Bendu in that situation where Thrawn would have had to follow Imperial War Protocol to end a threat. Because I don't understand what that scene actually did to Thrawn... As a character, he confronted an enemy and the enemy basically told him there is way more to this material plane of existence that you understand. I can't be killed by you, no matter what you do. And also, I see your defeat all around you. So I don't really understand what that line did to him as a character moving forward in the show. Unless that is a buildup and that's going to be a variable in like what happens with him and Ezra. Right? Like, unless that is meant to be a seed. And it's Dave Filoni, so it's always possible that that is like... That's a that's a seed he just planted there, and it's not going to bud till you know eons later. I think the way that I see that conversation, you know, Thrawn, I think he later admits to Ezra there are things about the Force that he does not understand, and he's very honest about that. I do wonder if there was pride that crept in with his actions there, where I don't know if he would have acted out of wounded pride there, where I, I never would have thought Thrawn to be someone to lash out in a moment of kind of like a lack of understanding where clearly there's things that the Bendu is saying that, that are just beyond Thrawn's comprehension in that moment. I don't know that I think Thrawn is, is one to be like, well, you know, you have to die because you just called me out. I honestly think that that conversation was to foreshadow how he ended up, you know, being taken away by the Pergils where it's their, their tentacles did wrap around him in that cold embrace. There were, it was uh, the way I see that scene. I think, you son of a bitch. Just, I think that's right. I think that's I, totally accurate yeah. observation. I think, yeah. I know that's been pointed out to me before where initially in that, when I first saw that scene, I, I didn't realize that that was a direct, you know, kind of like foreshadowing where he did end up losing to the, this cold embrace. Yeah. Um, but I, I think as far as like developing his character, I don't think that, it just raised a question for me as to whether he would have acted out of wounded pride or not. But I think just from a story point of view, it might've just been to set up how he ended up losing in the finale. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the most I could think of. I think you, I, honestly, I, it's funny. You, you kind of just perfectly kind of like honed in my focus a little bit more and redirected it. I, I guess I, I think you're, that's a, that's a really good point that it was also more about the foreshadowing of him acknowledging his ignorance of certain things in life with Ezra. And then the cold embrace. I, I Honestly, it's, yeah, I completely overlooked the hell out of that. So thank you. I, mean, I really it, appreciate that. That's It's that's a specific awesome. line. It's, you know, yeah, it's, not, it is. it's not laid out in front of us uh, where we could be like, oh, wait, that's exactly what the Bendu is talking about. It's, uh, yeah, but, you'd have to, um, but it works. It works so well. Um, yeah. Since we're talking about the situation on Adelon, I think I have a point here that I would love to ask you about because I think that, in the book, we got this sense that Thrawn was not about wasting resources. He was not about devaluing Imperial, the lives of Imperial troops, where I think Admiral Durrell was, you know, fine with sending in some boats of stormtroopers. It doesn't matter how many of them die as long as we win. Thrawn was never about 
send them in, we'll see what happens. When he led the ground assault on Adalon, there's this, this scene here where he sent in a group of ATDPs, kind of like the first wave of his attack. And they got instantly destroyed by, I think, mines that the rebels had had laid out. And the way that Thrawn responds to this, you know, it's kind of like he was expecting that to happen, or he kind of wanted to test their defenses. I'm not sure if I think Thrawn would have went in there and just flat out sacrificed the lives of his troops in order to see what they had in store for the Imperials there. It felt, it felt like he was kind of sending them knowingly to their death. So we'd never get confirmation if the ATDPs were piloted. They were kind of just like moving forward, you right. know, kind of just in a straight line. I don't know if they were kind of programmed to do that or if there were actual pilots in there it just seemed like he kind of wasted valuable resources there where yeah. this is the biggest battle of his confrontation of his campaign against the rebels and right off the bat he just throws troops in there to get sacrificed i don't know if i uh, that kind of stuck out to me or i just i don't know if that was was him you know yeah i i agree with that completely um you're gonna have to bear with me because this is where again i i say you know my dislikes and my likes become a very hazy, you know, amorphous, it's a, it's a maelstrom where I yeah. go, hey, I have these opinions, but I kind of feel like I could come up with justifications that work. I wonder if him choosing, him, him electing to do that as a battle plan, I almost wonder if he did what he did mainly because he didn't have schematics, he didn't have a total read of where mm. he was going. But That's see, fair. then I can counter that and go, well, hold on. If I'm if I'm trying to use the fact that maybe he didn't have enough information to act on as a justification, I can counter that immediately because we've seen Thrawn is not going to act with inappropriate yeah. amount of, he'd of act, information. He'd ask for more time. Exactly. Uh, what, exa mm, that's that's a so, oh. What's so to make of like, that? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't like, I can, what came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. I just have both. I don't know how to tell you how it happened. <laughs> um, but no, I don't, I think ultimately though, you know, maybe that just gets chopped, chalked up to, like, how you said, like, he would kind of dismiss himself maybe just for the sake of plot so he could, like, you know, ixnay out of there. It's very possible that that's just all that was, was like, hey, isn't it fun when ATDPs roll up first and then the ATATs come <laughs> in? Ah, oh, do the thing! Uh, I just, I, I think there were a few times, because there was, you know, uh, just another scene where I think Sabine and Ezra stole the new TIE Defender Elite, I think it was, and he sent three TIE Interceptors go go see if you could take him down, knowing probably full well that these shieldless TIE Interceptors stood no chance against his TIE Defender Elite. And right there, he pretty much just sacrifices three pilots to learn about how his Defender can fare in combat. I don't yep. know if there are other ways that he could go about that, but I think there was just this theme of me trying to reconcile these two factors where he has a historic value of, of limiting these casualties and saving lives, Regardless if they're Imperial or civilian, because even after Price detonated the facility in Paragosto City, the next thing that he did was send in search and rescue teams. This is blown out of proportion. We need to save whoever's still left alive from this. And then, you know, in, in the last episode, he orders an, a bombardment of the capital city of Lothal to, to strike fear into Phoenix Squadron and killed civilian lives then. It's just this theme of me trying to reconcile his value for life that we saw in the book and then realizing the stakes of the situation and, and maybe knowing what's the best tactic in that given situation. I just had a hard time reconciling those two things because, you know, he knows that the, the stakes are high. Yeah. But does that warrant him throwing lives away? I, I don't know. Yeah. I think in the book, I feel like Thrawn approaches Imperial Protocol with 
the eyes of a very genuinely, you know, earnest person or even like outside perspective, which he is an outside perspective coming in. It's the whole point of him. When you stack that up with the show Thrawn, he doesn't seem like he's an outside perspective anymore. It seems like he he's in it. is inside <laughs> of it. And he's just like, hey, fucker, we do this shit. Drop a bomb on him. Don't <laughs> give a fuck. I think I just did not like that, I think. Yeah, I, I completely out. agree with you. I um, I also kind of want to go back to the Bendu really quickly because you, you touched sure. on, you know, in the book, we are met with his sincere understanding and appreciation for life. So that was something that I was just like, I was like, I'm, I don't know how I feel about the fact that you guys just made him actually attempt to murder the Bendu. Because um, he was defeated then. He was he like, was. they had shot him out of the sky pretty much. And he was just He's laying just there. He's just a wounded helpless. enemy uh, to his eyes. But then here's least, this yeah. thing, though, too, is that, you know, we we talk about how, like, oh, he's this morally great character. And while, yes, he is, again, with my, like, countering thoughts on the inner monologue, uh-huh. You know, something that popped up in my head, too, was like, hey, you would never try to murder the Bindu. I don't like that you got, like, I would have done it differently. But then also, hey, Eli literally says, um, are those Wookiee slaves? Exactly. And exactly. Thrawn straight up goes, those are Imperial assets now. If they are slaves, they will be treated as Imperial assets, which means they will be treated with the most sincere um, care in the world as the Empire would. And he leaves it at that. You know, at that point, he is complacent in knowing that there is a loss of innocence in that moment for some grander scheme that the Empire has. And he kind of sees that as like, that is not in my prime directive. Like, I have to look past something like that because I'm going to get caught up. And it's funny because that also turns into the duality of like Night Swan versus Thrawn, right? Macro, micro, yeah. which one do you want to take care of? It almost seems like Thrawn has been like, become like jaded by the yeah. time he shows up in Rebels. And I mean, there is a lot that has got, you know, because I know that you haven't yet read Alliances and Treason. There is a lot that happens at, at the end of book three. He is on his way back to Lothal where he appears the chimera oh um, my god that's gonna so, be awesome to read so i, I want to come back to your point about thrawn and how he kind of grappled slavin in that moment where that was another point that i had here where i just called it lapses in his character for lack of a better term it just did not seem kind of true to how like the emotionless and kind of just steady and and controlled he was in the book with these moments like these in the show where you know, he did grab Slavin and snarl at him. He he seemed very angry in the moment, like you had said before. And there was another moment where he had sent Admiral Constantine to deal with the rebels above Mycapo. And Constantine initially was saying that, you know, I'll send some ships to deal with them. And Thrawn is like, no, you're going to go yourself. You're going to take a single light cruiser and you're going to deal with them. And he says, and I quote, a single light cruiser should be more than sufficient for a man of your talents, unless you're not up to it. And that seemed to me there that that was very petty of Thrawn, purposefully taking a shot at his pride, which I just, I don't know. It's, it, it seemed too imperial of Thrawn in that moment to kind of just take that dig yeah. just for the purpose of taking the dig. It's probably the more strategically sound decision to send Constantine with other ships to send a fleet there to deal with, you know, Phoenix Squadron and these rebels above my capo, but he purposely tells Constantine, no, you're going to do this yourself. You're going to take a ship unless you're here to tell me that you can't do that. I, I just, I yeah. don't know what to make of that. I, I, also, I didn't sit well with me. I feel like it kind of, um, kind of seems like that's a more like politically based maneuver. And I, I don't mean that it has to do with politics, but what I do mean is, um, the ambiguous nature behind, um, like, the art of voice, 
right? In the Book of Thrawn, he doesn't have this miraculous art of voice the way politicians do, right? He's completely ignorant to it. He, he speaks yeah. objectively and calls it as, and he just, you know, goes about his day. And, like, that's, they kind of, like, really rail that in that, like, that felt like a move that Arinda Price would do, right? For sure, for sure. Playing somebody else's weakness against them, but only in a conversation, not in a very real battle sequence. Now, I know that those are relatively similar things, but we haven't seen Thrawn do that yet, right? Like, again, yeah. he speaks objectively. That, to me, just kind of seemed like a move a politician would make, and we know that Thrawn isn't great in that realm of, yeah. of encounter. It felt like he kind of threw the fight where he knew that Constantine wasn't up for it, and he sent him anyway, just to prove the point that he wasn't good enough, and I, I just, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't like it. It um, almost felt like a Grand Moff Tarkin thing. Yeah, I just think it was like a very imperial thing of Thrawn to do, which yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know. And there's this last point that I have here under like kind of like the, the lapses of character, for lack of a better term again, where before he led the attack on Adalon, he told the rebels, and I quote, I want you to know failure, utter defeat, yes! and that it is I who delivers it crashing down upon you. I'm just wondering to you, is this true to his character? It seems like a very prideful and arrogant thing for him to say, where it seems just after he said it's not about the glory, it seems here he wants them to know, yeah, it's me who yes. is winning. Like, I just kind of like a juxtaposition almost. Dude, I, yeah, no, thank you for bringing that. Like I said, don't have my notes with me. So I really appreciate you bringing up the things that I have written down that I'm like slipping on. But, um, but yeah, I, I very truly appreciate that you opened up with like, hey, first off, we're going to talk about what we would do differently. We are not going to just objectively be like, fuck you, you did a thing wrong. Um, yeah. And I think I think it's it's very easy for a fan of Star Wars to fall into that. It's so for sure. easy for sure. We're really we are is. unfortunately <laughs> that way. And I also know that I'm no I'm no uh, like a wholly innocent party to that. But um. Thank you for bringing that up, but because it, it's a very, very one of the more peculiar Thrawn things that happened in Rebels, I think, knowing yeah. about the books. Because um, yeah, there was a juxtaposition between him looking to Callus and being like, oh, I, "I crave not the glory," no, and then basically him being like, "I'm gonna put my fist in your face and take your <laughs> lunch money." Um, it just, it, I think it happened moments after that, which I just thought was so yeah. strange, and, and it is just like one line. But it just felt weird. And again, like, so here's that thing, right? Like, are we creating justifications or are we appropriately reading in between the lines and inferring where needs to be inferred? Yeah. So has he succumbed to the war machine and has he succumbed to this transition of, you know, the empire being a government that is governing versus a government that is actively taking on, you know, what yeah. they perceive as rebel terrorists. Those are two different things, right? Yeah. You know, originally, you know, the book, we got to see, he would go on, we even saw he would go on, you know, humanitarian-based missions where he would um, he yeah. would uh, escort fuel and make sure people have what they need. To now, it's almost, uh, it's this power grab of like, it's the quote at the beginning of a Clone Wars episode, and I know it's a quote for something else, and unfortunately, your boy does not know what it's from, but uh, <laughs> those who gain power are afraid to lose mm. it. He's in a, a military state of being where that's, that's very much what is happening. Everyone is scrambling to make sure that their dominance is known so that they keep what's happening. And also, I kind of wonder, is what we saw, is that actually an appropriate view of Thrawn in the precursor to the Galactic Civil War? knowing that he's basically put all of his eggs in a single basket, knowing yeah. that he's trying to assess certain situations with between the, uh, you know, the, the greater rim conflicts of the galaxy and the Empire, and also assess them for the sake of the Chiss Ascendancy, is what we saw an appropriate look 
at a character who is acknowledging the possibilities of the eggs being in the wrong basket? That's a good question. Uh, and I wonder, you know, because he did kind of stick with the Empire longer than was intended. He wasn't supposed to rise up in their ranks like that. And it's just very interesting, the line that he continued to walk between being loyal to the Chiss and then also serving the interests of the Empire and what kind of overlap there there was there. Um that's a good point. Um, I, I, I like you, you kind of touched on his relationship with or kind of just like in the galaxy people's relationship with power here. And I, I feel like in the show, Thrawn seemed more actively trying to kind of grab and maintain power. Yeah. I have a couple of quotes here where this was in the season finale, I think, where he's telling Ezra that and I quote, you follow a long history written by the Jedi where they choose what they believe to be morally correct instead of what is strategically sound. But for all those abilities, all the power, the Jedi lacked the vision for how to wield it. And there's another quote, who deserves what is irrelevant? What matters is who has power. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Is that very warrior-like of Thrawn? Is that kind of true to the warrior persona where he realizes that power, it's its an asset you know, that needs to be wielded in the proper way? Or did that kind of lean towards him kind of like kind of all the eggs in the Imperial basket and kind of buying into the, like, the Imperial war machine? What are your thoughts about, about that? Thank you so much for bringing up the warrior archetype because... I kind of freaking loved it. And I know that, you know, him admitting, you know, what matters is power and who wields it. Um, I understand that that very much goes against what I believe, you know, to be in Thrawn's character. But after having thought about it, I kind of wonder if, you know, maybe the way that I should be looking at it, obviously, you know, everyone should look at this the way they should look at it. But I feel like maybe the book touches on the romantic, if you will, in Thrawn and maybe the show emphasizes the warrior mm. it's a less intimate um altercation that he has than he did with uh the night swan right yeah so i think with the night swan it was two like-minded romantic individuals in a in a borderline wartime event and yeah. they got the chance to meet and they got the chance to interact with each other through uh combat scenarios versus rebels feels almost like you know the negotiations were short and <laughs> now you're touching down on naboo and you just have to react and i, th I think kind of like playing in the warrior archetype, the warrior side of Thrawn kind of fit the purpose of the Rebels show more. You know, yeah. they kind of play, you know, played kind of perfectly because that's what he needed to be is this mastermind warrior on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there wasn't really the room for kind of like the nuanced romantic side of, of Thrawn um, in, in the format of the Rebels show, I, I think. Definitely not. Yeah, I think when you look at I think that's the equivalent of being like, oh, let's get Ahsoka, Ezra, Sabine, Bo-Katan, and all these people in the next Mandalorian season. Like, well, if you do that, <laughs> you're radically going to take away from, like, what actually is trying to be told, you know? Like, yeah. obviously, that would be great. But, yeah, I think if we if we focused on, like, heavily dense and nuanced Thrawn, I think, you know, when you stack that up against, you know, the door between worlds, you stack up that up against the ephemeral Lothwall wolves and Kanan's story yeah. arc, that would be it such a can't. clash of the senses that I yeah. don't think rebels could coexist with all of that. Um, yeah, for sure. Ultimately, it's like it, the show is about the rebels. And it, precisely. It, it, you it's know not what? meant to be that in-depth look to, yeah. And, and, and to talk about that too, it was actually, there was a detail I wanted to bring up uh, earlier was, you know, maybe that's what Thrawn looks like to the opposing end 
You know what I mean? Yes. We're, yeah. t- we're this whole time we've been talking about a book that is all about Thrawn and is about Eli Vanto and Arinda Price, and we get journal entries from Thrawn. But now we're also looking at a show where the closest to Thrawn we get is Arinda Price and Callus. To that vein, maybe the dialogue, maybe the decisions, maybe it all makes sense based on the perspective of the show. And the lens that you're looking through, yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's a really good point. It's like, it's it's from the perspective of the rebels almost, you know? <laughs> Right, like, we're sitting here talking about, like, the moral nuances of a villain in a show where he's the villain versus the book where he's the protagonist. Like, but, d- didn't Phoenix Squadron read the book? I don't know. <laughs> didn't they know that he loves opera and ballet and he's actually more culturally nuanced than this? He was a theater kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I and I and I don't mean to bring that up to uh, to completely mitigate the the significance of this conversation because honestly, no, no, I didn't I didn't get to that thought until having this conversation. So that's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, in this again, like ultimately, I know Thrawn does things that I don't agree with in the show, but I still, if it, if it came to talking about Thrawn to somebody, I would still pull up the season three trailer for Rebels. As, like, the intro and just be like, homie, get ready for, like, your next favorite <laughs> character. And and I don't know. I just, I think I would still point to Rebels as, like, that's still Thrawn to me. I Granted, I, but I still, I but, you know, we've, we've touched on this. We still have disagreements on, like, certain things that have happened. But I think, overall, I can end it going, that's, that's still my dude. That's a good point. And I love that point where, you know, what we're seeing from Thrawn is, you know, kind of, like, through the eyes of the, the protagonists, where he yeah. is purely an antagonist in Rebels. There was someone who mentioned that their first exposure to Thrawn was Rebels before reading the books, and they hated him. They hated him because of just how good he was at, at being the villain, at thwarting the Rebels. But then you read the book, and you and you see like the nuances and the intricacies of his character, and you know through these materials, like through the literature, we kind of see the complexities to his character that we would get from his point of view and from, like, the point of view of Eli, but in Rebels, like we're never supposed to get that with just the the nature of the show. Yeah, I do want to ask you about his delegation. There's this quote here where this was in the last episode where Price had failed against the Rebels. He was talking to Rook and he says, and I quote, I expected Governor Price to fail, but not so completely. And this also ties into how he sent Constantine into battle, pretty much expecting him to fail just with the one ship. And I get the theme of Thrawn kind of letting others learn from their mistakes. That seems very true to him, how he, he's not one to spoon feed answers to people or tell them the way. He lets them learn from the situations and then he can kind of inform them from there on. But I just wonder about the stakes in Rebels, where if that's the place for him to kind of let that happen, where if he expected Price to fail against the group of Rebels that Palpatine wants taken down... This is their top priority. I just, I wasn't sure if that was the sound judgment, I guess, where if he was expecting Price to fail, then why have her fail in the first place when he could have, you know, I get that he wasn't on Lothal at the time. You know, he was still on his way back to Lothal, and maybe, you know, that's the only reason why they failed there, that he wasn't there soon enough. I just, I I want, because there were multiple times where he let others try to deal with the rebels where he kind of, was on the periphery or stayed back. It's a weird thing to kind of end that show and go like, hold on. Thrawn is single-handedly the reason the Rebel Alliance actually got to get together because they had one swift victory that Thrawn allowed and said, I expect her to fail. It's kind of a weird situation where like Thrawn, you, 
you actually kind of helped take down the Empire. Like, <laughs> you literally admitted to, lit- like, knowing people were going to fail during their job. And, like, we know for a fact you have all of the resources and tools to, like, exact the Empire's vengeance. And he chose not to, so I don't... Yeah, it's it's a very... We- His delegation seems radically different from the book. Because it was a little bit more hands-on in the book, where here he was kind of constantine do this and all that and also you said it perfectly right he doesn't spoon feed you the lesson he anticipates your learning style and then kind of acclimates the lesson to you right like that's kind of what he's done but it also just seems like you know it's it's like playing an rpg and picking your followers that you want to go in your companions for the next mission right you don't just like pick the weakest one you you know and he has historically picked the right candidates for jobs and it just seems like his delegation kind of was almost built on just like being like ha i knew you'd fail i'm gonna do better watch this this is how you do it (laughs) um so i don't yeah yeah i will say that i and i guess this kind of ties into my my last point here i don't think that I can fault him for losing to the Purgle at at the end. Straight I, the fuck up. I don't. Okay, I'm. I just. I know that there's a lot of people who think that there's no way he could have lost against Ezra against a teenager. I don't think there's any way for him to have anticipated Purgle. He. I don't think he knew that the Purgle were a thing. I don't yeah, think there's any way that he could have known. I don't think that there's any way I can fault him for because that that is. A plan that I would be surprised if anyone went into that last episode thinking Ezra's going to bring in the Purgle, that's how Thrawn's going to lose. I don't think anyone could expect that. I know that Thrawn expects the unexpected, but I just, I can't necessarily fault him for that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is my last point here where it's kind of set up by this quote here where... Hera had defeated Captain Scarus, I think he was, the this elite Imperial pilot, and Thrawn says, and I quote, regrettable, but a testament to Syndulla's skill as a combat pilot. <laughs> and I think this kind of sums up Thrawn in the show, and this kind of goes in line with him losing to the Purgle, where there's only so much that Thrawn can do and anticipate before we also have to take into account the skill of his opponent. We saw this in the Legends trilogy as well. He wasn't perfect against Han and Luke and Leia. He suffered some defeats against them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we would be mistaken to think that Thrawn is unbeatable. You know, he he has been defeated before. A lot of things end up playing out the way that he wants them to, but I think I, I would argue against anyone who thinks that he was weakened a bit in the show where it's like, are we just going to take away the fact that Hera is a fucking brilliant pilot, that Ezra and Kanan are literally Jedi, that they understand things about the, the Force and the <laughs> yeah. universe that Thrawn told Ezra that he does not fully comprehend? I just don't know if I can fault Thrawn in those ways. Yeah. Hey, also, Ezra's a really good pilot, too. When he they, is, yeah. <laughs> when, they took, when they took the TIE Defender uh, Elite, um, he literally says, like, oh, it can't be Harris and Dula because the TIE Fighters would have been destroyed much quicker. I wonder what other pilot Ezra's flying with. And, like, the camera cuts, and it's literally Ezra being like, I don't know how to stop it! And he's just, like, barely holding on. He's dunking on Ezra, but Ezra's actually like, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's, um... Also, something that I think, like, happens more in Rebels is it shows the Imperials for how we know 
the Imperials to be. For sure, um, for sure. Which is, so to piggyback your, your point was um, Thrawn can be as tactfully prepped as he possibly can be in a situation. It also does boil down to his subordinates, which we have yeah. seen them literally flat out fucking deny his command in the middle yeah. of combat, right? Uh, Not adding you, Constantine. But <laughs> yeah, I like it's it's crazy. Um, the the pilot Iscaris, he literally says like, oh, what, what is his like? One of his final lines is like, I've got her. I'm gonna get Sindu like Hera. And Thrawn says, back up. You are playing right into her like into yeah. her game. Like she wants you to fly into us because we're gonna unload on you guys in a second. Yeah. And the same thing happens with, I, I forget his name, you mentioned him earlier, unfortunately, the the guy who chooses glory to take down Sato. Constantine, yeah. Admiral yeah, Constantine. Constantine, sorry, yeah, you, you literally just referenced it, my bad. It's interesting to see, because also in the book, I and I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's the nuance of the book, but in the book we are allowed to see that Thrawn has a reputation in the Empire. And when Thrawn gets brought in, I feel like they do touch on that reputation. But then right after, I feel like his reputation among his Imperial subordinates just gets thrown out the window. It almost feels like people don't really know his success rate and his leadership style. It's, I think, a common theme in the books. And I think I can't really argue about how this was in the show as well, because, yeah, his... You know, Constantine flat out disobeyed a direct order when Thrawn's telling him stay in position. He's like, no, I'm not going to play your game. Scarus disobeys his order as well. It's kind of like a theme that Thrawn is disliked amongst the Empire. And I think we, you know, we got that in the book where High Command just flat out did not like him. They feel yeah. like they're being shown up by him. I like the little blip we got about Captain Peleon at the, in the <gasps> season finale. Yeah, where, me too. It's um, <laughs> got one line from him where they're being destroyed by the Purgle, but I wish that we had got, and again, this isn't within the format of the show, this isn't how the show is laid out, but I just wish that we'd have seen some interactions between Thrawn and, you know, his crew, like the, the crew of the Chimera, like the yeah. officers like Peleon and, you know, whatever bridge commanders he had where, you know, we got this, an, an insight into how much he was respected by Eli, by Pharaoh, by those around him who had been under his command for a while and they knew how good he was and being tasked with the Seventh Fleet to take down the rebels there. Yeah, ultimately a lot of his failings were because those around him didn't understand what he did and that they were just acting on the pursuit of glory. And that pointed to a lot of like the times the Empire failed in the show, like you said, because they disobeyed his orders. And if things had, had gone according to his plan, it might have ended differently. But you also have to factor in, you know, just as much as we have to factor in the skill and the capabilities of his opponents, we also have to factor in how incompetent the Empire can be when it's not Thrawn yeah. acting in the moment. And yeah, that's really good where we got exposed to those around him who didn't really care about how delicately he wanted to treat certain situations. I think that wraps up about a lot of the things that I've got. Do you have any closing thoughts on the adaptation of Thrawn from the book to the show? Any kind of closing thoughts before we end the episode? Yeah, it was terrible. No, I um. But uh, one last thought to add to it, I think would probably be that Having, you know, gone on this journey with you and, you know, read a book, talked about it, really dissected it and, and had conversations and then jumping to this, um, it almost looks like Timothy Zahn wasn't consulted, really. I wonder. About yeah. Thrawn, like Thrawn's dialogue. It kind of seems like no one really like, 
I don't know. It just didn't really seem like he was there to help out with like, because he clearly had deeper motives with where he wanted Thrawn to go. And it seemed like yeah. the show. I, but, you know, we touched on the fact that like the show doesn't really have the slot to fit that kind of character. So, you yeah. know, I don't know. I guess I guess I'm repeating myself at this point, Andy. So uh, take it away. I think the biggest takeaway that I have from this is is your point about how, you know, maybe like Thrawn that we're seeing him in the show is is meant to be just seeing the warrior on the other side. And how, yeah. as much as I, I know how much more there is to him, ultimately, yeah, the, the show is, is not his. He yeah. is supposed to be the villain. Yeah, we're supposed to view him as that villain who's opposing the rebels and yeah it's it's almost like that's that's that justification for all these things and it, it, yeah. it does in this in this circumstance it kind of fits i guess it's, it's kind of like meeting a stranger who had just met like your best friend that you've had to like reconcile <laughs> how quirky and just absolutely strange they are and you're just like i swear to god there's depth i swear <laughs> there is way more happening behind those very blank eyes i promise oh he's god. not just fart jokes i swear there's more <laughs> We couldn't know more if we didn't have the, you know, the material from Timothy Zahn. So, you know, first things first, I'm thankful that we do, and that we get the deeper glimpse into Thrawn. I think the moment that he joined into the show, I think, just made it so much better for me. I think the show became better with him. I think the stakes were raised with him. Oh, yeah. When I thought about it, you know, because initially I thought, wait, he just... He lost against the rebels. You know, the, where was his victory? And then I just remembered that on Adalon, he annihilated the rebel fleet pretty much, except yes. for a few ships that escaped. When they tried to attack the Defender facility, he literally, tw like 24 ships flew in. All of them, except for like three, were just destroyed. Yeah. We spent an entire show getting those ships, and we watched yeah. all of them get downed. I think he did have some serious wins. You know, he took home yeah. some some thick dubs, um, you know, the thickest ultimately of dubs. the thickest of dubs. But ultimately, I think I can only expect so much to go his way before we realize that he's up against Jedi. He's up against like the best pilots in the rebellion and that not everyone below him is as capable as, as he is. And, you know, we, we saw that on display. And I still think what they, and I said this with Price, what they got right about kind of like the how we know them from the book, I think they did really, really well. Yeah. And, you know, there will always be points of contention and discussion, which is why I appreciate this episode and last episode. And, you know, thank you for coming on to discuss the main man connor I, I really appreciate you taking the time a lot of good discussion points and there's a lot to unpack and we could keep going <laughs> yeah i can i add one final fucking thing that sounded that sounded really aggressive adding the fucking to that i apologize it was, that was meant with love but um I, so you know after i finished it i wanted to look up you know did timothy zahn have any responses to rebels um and i got to find this one thing and i just loved it was uh, Filoni reached out to Timothy Zahn and was like, hey, man, like, we're, we, you know, we've been pushing for this for a long time. We finally got the green light. We're bringing your boy back in. He's coming in. He's going to be in Rebels. And uh, this was like email correspondence, I believe. And um, Timothy Zahn replies to Dave Filoni in, in, with a single sentence, the internet is going to melt. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I and saw that and was like... <laughs> If it be it ever so humble, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're God. Because I mean, he, he uh, yeah. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Literally, I, I look forward so much to being able to talk Star Wars with you. No, Fantastic. Thank you. 
thank you. This this has been really good, and I, I love that and that note where like the internet's gonna melt because we know and Zahn knows, Filoni knows, we all know how amazing of a character Thrawn is and how loved he was, especially after the the Legends trilogy. And, and it's been really awesome to discuss his impact in the Rebels show. And you know, I've, I've got ascendancy uh, chaos rising in front of me. Oh. We, he's he's not th they're not done with Thrawn yet, and I am so thankful for that. Connor, thank you so much for coming on to discuss him. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media, feel free to give our Twitter account a follow at Outer Rim Read Pod. Let us know what you thought of Thrawn's adaptation. And you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, try taking a few minutes to complete the Fall 2020 listener survey. Your input really means so much and helps shape the future and direction of the podcast more than you know. Check out the link in our episode description or on our Twitter page. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it's produced by Andrew Geha, it is edited by Andrew Geha, and we will be back in two weeks with episode 19. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Looks like our new server droid is making rounds. Let them know if you want a cup of Jawa juice.